everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test? I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about some things we should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes, like, we do nothing all week. This was like a dead week for us. Was it? I mean, like, I went to work, there was a kitten once, but that, that was it. Um, I feel like you're forgetting how we replaced all of our Tupperware. <gasps> Oh, I was trying to make us seem cooler than we actually are because, yes, replacing all of our Tupperware with new Tupperware was the highlight of my week. Yeah, between like replacing all of the Tupperware and me replacing a faucet, like these little things are wins when you have a house that is falling around, falling apart around you. Yeah. But we're, our roof is getting replaced. Taylor Swift, we need your assistance, please. I know. It's it's getting late in the game, Taylor. Yep, because like, like, we, we don't have a choice now, Taylor Swift. We need you to replace our roof. Seriously, Taylor, I solved your word search. What else do you want from me? But, I mean, we had a quiet week with the world kind of exploded. This is, if you're, you know, listening in the future, this is the week when the Taliban was like, hey, we're taking over Afghanistan. And we were like, okay, cool, bye. Yeah, that was, ugh. Yeah, it's like, it's been a quiet week for us, probably because, like, everything's falling apart around us. Yeah, this... I was about to get real political there, but... Yeah. Not the, that has never stopped me. This is why Biden was my fifth choice. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like... We could have had a bad bitch named I, Elizabeth Warren. I fully understand that there is no actual way to withdraw from this in a good manner, but still, it sucks to watch it. Well, yeah, and he also has been like, ignoring it. Yeah. He's been pretending, if I don't if I don't talk about it, it's not happening. If I don't think about it, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And yes, I know there's other shit going on. And I know that we've got moronic... Ma oh, oh, the lady at Costco. The lady at Costco. Okay, so we've got these moronic people who refuse to wear masks, and then they're like, why are all of our babies dying? I don't understand. Then we have Costco lady, our our lordess and savior, the queen I of America. I laughed about this all day yesterday. She, I, I noticed her from afar, because Austin and I split up at the Costco, and I thought, oh, there's a lady buying an American flag. Weird way to carry it, but okay. Uh, didn't think anything of it, because it's Costco. They sell everything. Although I will say, I went through all of the aisles looking for something, did not see any American flags, because she was not, in fact, purchasing it. No, she brought it with her. And we're not talking a little American flag. We're talking one of those giant ones you hang on the side of your house. Yeah, this was a full-sized American flag. And she had modified it so that instead of stars, it said Trump. No, it actually, it had Trump. Then above it, it had 76, as in 1776, because she was about liberty and the founding fathers and also Trump for some reason. The founding fathers would not have approved of Trump. I want to be very clear on that. And also, I guess this wasn't an American flag, so feel free to absolutely drag this woman if you ever see her. Yeah, technically it's no longer an American flag with that level of modification. I yeah. I consider doing flag code this week because of her, but it turns out it's not interesting. No, it's really not. Um, There are a lot of ways to disrespect the flag, and a lot of them are being done by people who use it as a sign of, look at how patriotic I am. But, I mean, none of it's illegal. It's just ill-advised based on the actual flag code. I mean, there are a few illegal things like wearing it as a thong and nothing else if you're a woman and walking down the street. But, yeah. you know, that's true no matter what you're wearing. You know, except for in parts of New York. Yeah. And you small can be, pockets of the, uh, throughout the United States. You can be States. topless in New York, ladies. In parts of New York. I don't know about the whole thing. I think you, should walk, you can just wander around Central Park topless. I'm pretty sure there's a nude beach in Missouri. I'd have to double check. But I, I know there's one in the Midwest. I think it's Missouri. But do you want to go to a Missouri nude beach? I don't want to go to a Missouri beach, but... Yeah, oh God, the beaches... Um, 
it'll be basically on a really, really slimy pond somewhere, I guess. But yeah, so that's like the highlight of our week is we got new Tupperware and we saw a lady where who um, at least she wasn't yelling at anybody. No. And she pretty like, but honestly, maybe that was her way of social distancing. I think that's one of our friends pointed that out to us on Facebook. Well, like that's a good way to keep people away from you. I feel like if she was wanting to actually do that, she would have been wearing a mask. Yeah. My God, I saw the dumbest thing earlier. Uh, I got vaccinated so I wouldn't have to wear a mask. Um, That's still not how this works. Like that's like saying I got the flu vaccine so I can still lick my hands and rub them all over your face. <laughs> I mean, that's why I got the flu vaccine. 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 Yeah. So, folks, if you're not wearing masks, please, 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 please. We got babies dying. We've got cancer patients being turned away in hospitals. Yeah. Uh, there was a dude in Texas who had to wait a week to get surgery after having six bullets lodged in him. He was shot. He didn't like fall onto a bullet box and like they ended up up his butt or something weird. But no, no, he was, he was shot. Yeah. Like because the the hospitals are too full of people who didn't bother to get vaccinated. So if you can't get vaccinated, you know, be careful, be safe out there because other people clearly don't care. Yeah. Hot take. Oh, boy. That was a bummer. It went from talking about the unhinged flag lady to being sad. Oh, I guess there is a really direct line between her and awfulness. Um, But in better news, if you have not gotten a chance to yet this past week, our episode um, that we were on for the podcast Myth Story came out, M-Y-T-H-S-T-O-R-I-E, that came out this past week. We talk about the Squonk, which is a super awesome cryptid. You can catch them on YouTube as well as a lot of other channels. This week, I think, might be next week, my episode that I'm on of Story Shout comes out where I talk about uh, that I suck at sleeping. You get to find out my real first name. So that's exciting, too. Just that kind of stuff's going on. I'm working on revamping everything on our site. It's an undertaking, folks, especially because I'm trying to convert us from one, uh, what's the what's the word, host to another for our, we- for our website, because our website's really hard to maintain. So working on doing that. So you might see some changes in the future on onthetestpod.com if I can ever learn how to internet. She's getting very good at it. Um, I saw her reading a book called, uh, called The Internet and had a kid surfing on a book down a weird digital pipeline. Yeah, it's from the year 1994. Yeah, uh, she's just, uh, I guess, folks, send us your AOL CDs so we can keep doing this. Remember how we used to get free internet after free internet because they hadn't yet figured out how to make it so you can only use the free trial once? Yeah. And the, and the CDs were free, too. Yeah. And then we would have all these piles of CDs, which were not recyclable. We would make, quote unquote, art out of them. I had them hanging on fishing line from my ceiling for a while. Oh, yeah. I was really cool. The 90s were a really cool time, kids. Yeah. When you look at the fashion from the 90s and think, wait, they were hanging CDs from fishing line from their ceiling. It all kind of tracks. It's like, yeah, that all makes sense. Austin's over here like fashion from the 90s while wearing his cargo shorts. There's three things men are allowed to wear in this country, and cargo shorts is one of them. See, I think we need to bring over like European men's styles. You guys will have so many more options. Oh my god, the super, super short shorts. You see like an acre of thigh? Oh, it's so pale. Okay, we have to agree, though, that the short shorts look better than a lot of the long shorts on men. Like, what are you guys afraid of? Show those thighs. You want us to. I mean, like... I mean, nobody wants to see your ass hanging out, but just like... Your thighs are a valuable part of your body. I know. Mine are pretty pasty and hairy. It's not a good look. 
You're only saying that because society tells you that, Austin. I should. What you're saying, if I this em- was the 80s, you would feel the opposite. I should embrace my body. This whole body positivity. Oh, I don't like body positivity. Another hot take. I well, like body neutrality. Whatever. I'm just going to start singing the uh, This Is Me song from Greatest Showman, your favorite musical, over and over until you accept my weird legs. I can't tell if you think I don't like that musical. It's an okay musical. Please. We left and you were like amazed by it. I liked it for the most part. The ending is kind of one of those things. I'm like, why? Why did you do this? Okay. Anyway, I start today. You do. All right. So no transition there. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah. So I hated poetry growing up. I still kind of hate poetry. I basically like this poet named Rupi Kaur, and that is it. Her poetry is these random thoughts that are just written better than I could write my random thoughts, but they are random thoughts that I myself have had. So I can relate to it, and I feel like she's written them really well, but in a way that is still relatable and not like, look how much smarter I am than all of you, which uh, kind of is how I feel like poetry is usually saying. It's like, yes, I know you've also had these thoughts, but I'm smarter than you, so I'm having them better. Look at how intelligent I am. So yeah, Rupi Kaur, I'd highly recommend her. Uh, when I was a fir- when I first became a teacher, I taught English because that's where there were more jobs. And all I could think was, please, please, please don't make me teach poetry. I'll teach literally anything else. Uh, I had to touch on poetry a few times, but overall, I didn't have to teach it, teach it, which was great. Because to be honest, I just don't really get it. I mean, it's like Tolkien or unpopular opinion. I'm full of those today. The final Lord of the Rings movie. Just get to your goddamn point already. Tolkien was Lord of the Rings. I know. I'm talking about Tolkien's books. I like the first Lord of the Rings movies. And then there's that last one that won all the Oscars. And I'm like, what the fuck? I felt I cannot stay awake during that movie. I'm like, okay, speech, fight, speech, fight, speech, fight, predictable ending, roll credits. So, Get to the point. Have we actually just known the secret to having you fall asleep this entire time? Well, part of my falling asleep to that movie is a trauma response, so I'd prefer to not go through that every oh, night. fine. But yeah, it's get to the point. That is my whole thought with poetry. Just, just if you've got something to say, just say it. Weirdly, I really like, I do like Charles Dickens, but also I understand that he was paid by the word. So I get it in that case. But remember from our Shakespeare episode, I also didn't like Shakespeare growing up. And I finally figured out why a few years ago. It's because our the way it was taught focused on the language, the iambic pentameter, blah, 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 not what they were actually trying to say. So what if my issue with poetry is kind of the same thing? It's not the poetry itself. It's the way I learned it. So I decided to dig into why people in general hate poetry, because I am very much not alone, how it's taught, and maybe how it should be taught instead, and see where we got. So first, let's start with what is poetry? I asked Austin this yesterday, and I asked him more specifically, how is poetry different from a short story? And I said, I don't know, like a short story is probably longer and poems have a meter to them. And then I pointed out Homer's The Odyssey is a poem. Yeah. And that doesn't technically everything have meter. I guess. No, because even poems don't, that. yes, they'll be like, oh, look, it has iambic pentameter. I'm like, really? Because the witches in Macbeth speak in trochaic tetrameter. I don't have it written in front of me. And then sometimes, you know, to make it fit, he'll change it slightly for a line and or to make an emphasis, like to emphasize a point. And then there are poems that are free verse, which don't have a recognizable meter, but there are short stories that do have a recognizable meter. Where is this line that we have drawn saying that this is prose and this is poetry and that is it? Where is that line? There is no line. It is a big, blurry mess of tiny, whiny stuff. Yeah, the limit does not exist. 
So I started looking for a definition of poetry that I would be like, okay, this will be straightforward. It'll set it out there. As I'll talk about in a minute, though, people start to use $5 words in place of the free words they would normally use when they talk about literally anything else. Words I saw included encantery, which means dreamlike, notional, which means idea, and even alchemize, which in that context just meant create or make. But they said it fancy. There are all types of deep meanings, like, quote, poetry is the shadow cast by our streetlight imaginations. Are you intentionally doing a Keanu Reeves voice? Leave Keanu out of this. This is all on Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Or, quote, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Gross. Said Williams Wor- William Wordsworth. Yes, Austin will tell you I, like, audibly gagged several times. Oh, I- Okay, she gagged and made more unpleasant faces researching this than she did, like, over any of the weird, gross stuff we've done. Yeah, well, I listen to a lot of true crime. Yeah. (laughs) This, though, the way we define poetry is the truest of crimes. At the end of the day, poetry as a concept cannot be defined, but poetry as a form people have been trying to define for the purposes of teaching and learning over and over and over. And it took me forever to find one. Most of them overcomplicated the idea or went deeply into how much better poetry is than prose, because poetry can make you feel something and prose can't. Uh, I have five words for you. Where the red fern grows. Yeah. Like, oh my God, this is, they are very different mediums. It's like, ugh, I can't believe that you're, I can't think of anything. Well, it's, that is some pompous gatekeeping bullshit. And it's also calling you stupid if you prefer prose to poetry, which you're not. You don't have, like, it's like saying, oh, you're stupid because you like romantic comedies over Adam Sandler comedies. It's like. No, they're two sides of the same coin if you really want to dig into it. Or it's like those people said, ugh, you're only playing Dark Souls. So you're only playing Bloodborne. Uh, Really, if you're a big fan of the series, you would play Demon Souls. Yeah. So it's people who are projecting their own feelings. And also, it cut to where I'm like, we're protesting a little much here, guys. You don't understand poetry either, do you? But then I found a piece in The Atlantic called What is a Poem by Mark Yakich. I'm totally butchering your, butchering your last name. Sorry, bro. Who appears to also be an English teacher. He said poetry. What the hell? I wrote poetry feels like a dar, like D-A-R, like Daughters of the American Revolution. <laughs> it, it, I think it probably does. Probably. It's like we're this weird exclusive organization with our own stupid rules. Actually, no, and he there's does. there's gatekeeping old women who are going to keep you out of it. He actually does talk about how it can be very gatekeeping. Um, it's something that you don't want to read. And if you do read it, you find it bland and with an easy to find moral rather than something you have to think about like you do with prose. But at the same time, you feel really stupid after reading it because the structure was so confusing and like you should be applauded for having read it in the first place because it was so much harder to read to get to that easy to find moral. He um, he suggests that instead of looking at a poem as a thing of beauty, like we've been told we have to do, we should just look at it as a thing that was written down at some point. Yeah, I like this definition. Yeah. Um. So haikus, poems. Yeah. But they can't be written or read the same way as sonnets, which can't be written or read the same way as diamantes, which are those ones that are shaped like diamonds that you only see in elementary schools. Free verse may as well be narratives except written in short lines and sentence fragments rather than the expected setup of narratives. There's even one poem 
That is just one misspelled word. It's one word, L-I-G-H-G-H-T. By the By the poem Aram Syrian. Now remember, if you're looking at the word light, L-I-G-H-T, the G-H is silent. There is no correct way to read this. And that is the point of the poem that everything is unknown, basically. So I'm I'm really sad that he put a word with it because I feel like if he had refused to define it, it would have been Dadaism. But he defined it, so it became not Dadaism. I regret doing this episode. Am I more wrong though? If he had, if he had just said, mm. yeah, if he just, it is what it is, man. So I understood Dadaism for a second, and then he defined it, and it went away. Yeah. So unlike because it can be literally anything, shouldn't poetry be more accessible instead of less accessible? Shouldn't everyone super dig poetry because it is so open. One can even argue a typo isn't a typo and you can't get points off. Poetry should be for everyone. And yet, so many people like me hate it more than any other type of literature. If what I've found online and working as a teacher and being a student and a human being is any indication, people really do hate this more than any other type of literature. Why? Well, you might need a stricter definition because by God, I spent hours trying to find a definition that wasn't just a series of look how smart I am words. So Blue Lib- Blue Nib Literary Magazine broke it down into, it wasn't like a one definition. It was actually a whole article defining it, which made sense considering it doesn't have a strict definition, but it's something that has a visible structure, musicality, and concentrated la- language. They pointed out that free verse does not have these things necessarily. They also pointed out that a lot of people still argue that free verse is not poetry. They did not seem to be taking a stance on it. This was just a statement of fact. A poem is basically anything you look at and go, oh, that's a poem, as opposed to, oh, that's a short story. Oh, that's a book. Now, and if you set music to it, it'd be, oh, it's a song. Also, for the love of God, why? I know that a lot of poetry can be turned into hip hop, but seriously, that shouldn't be your default. I love it how it's become like... It's a joke now. A joke. It's like, hey, I'm the cool teacher. Did you kids know that William Shakespeare was the original DJ? I am the cool white teacher in this all black school. Let me try to relate to you in the most offensive way possible. Not that there's anything offensive about hip hop. I love hip hop. I know that doesn't sound like me, but I actually really do. But I also wouldn't... I let... When it comes to culture, I try to be under like I try to be responsive and understanding, but I let the kids bring their culture to me rather than me saying, "Look at how I understand your culture." It's like, "Hello, fellow kids." Exactly. So a poem is basically anything you look at and say, oh, look, that's a poem. And honestly, you probably can look at most things and go, "Oh, that's a poem." You can't really explain why it's a poem; it just is. Yeah. Um, but the weird one is that I saw concentrated language come up in most definitions, with it basically meaning taking these big ideas and boiling them down into a few words. Really? Because why? if that's the case, why am I always saying, get to the point? Like, if we look at a sonnet, most sonnets can break down to, do you like me? Check yes or no. Like, do you like me? What if I compared you to a thing that is also pretty, like a summer's day? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I don't know the rest of it because I, I hate poetry. Um, something about roses being red and violets being blue, which is just a lie. Well, I read a, 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 some poems to Austin yesterday and like I was like, okay, Austin, I'm going to read some stuff to you and tell me which is a short story and which is a poem. I could not tell them apart. Yeah. And it comes down to with the way you read them aloud, poetry, if you read it aloud, in the normal way, it's 
here is a line and another line. Then there is a line. But if you just read them, here's a line and then there's this line and now there's another line. It still doesn't sound that weird. It sounds like you may be speaking like sometimes in some cases it can sound like English isn't your first language. In some cases it can kind of sound like you're having like these freedom of thought rather than like actual fully formed thoughts yet. But it doesn't not sound like a short story. Uh, so I found a Medium article called Six Reasons Why People Hate Poetry by Rebecca Roach, and I thought it really summed up both why we hate it and how we teach it incorrectly. Now, I want to start by saying, you know me, I don't throw shade on teachers. Teachers are given a textbook told, teach from this. Their answers are right or the answers are wrong. And like a lot of us, teachers were taught in that same way. So they're kind of like, we're doing the best we can. I get it. And also, you're not allowed to deviate half the time. So to quote her, the six reasons that she found people hate poetry were it's old slash dead. It's nerdy. It's elitist, snobbish, stuck up or exclusive. That's how I feel about it. It's boring. Also how I feel about it. It's hard. Eh, yeah. It never really interested me. I, okay. There have been like a handful of poems that were interesting, but like it's a handful and you're wading through like just so much like Wordsworth and Tennyson mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Percy Bryce Shelley when you should be listening to his way more interesting wife, Mary Shelley and her horror sci-fi. So for me, it's somewhere between it's hard and it's elitist, snobbish, and stuck up, stuck up and exclusive. For me as a student to admit something was hard was incredibly rare. But the way it was taught, which was like, look at the structure and the language, and there's only one correct meaning to this, made it very hard for me because... I was telling Austin, like, you know, you look at those IQ tests with the patterns and I and they're like, what comes next on this? Because they're like, if it's on a cube, it's like, so what would be on the next side of this cube? And I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, oh, you don't understand. It. I'm like, no, I understand the question. I understand what answer you're asking for, but I don't know what's on the other side of the cube. It could be a black hole into nothingness. I don't know. So don't tell me to tell you definitively what is on the other side of this cube. But I've noticed they don't do that anymore. And now they ask what is next in this pattern. Yep. Because there are probably a lot of people like me out there. It's like, are you sure it's on the same cube? These look like three different cubes. We don't know if it's the same cube. Exactly. The elitist nature of it comes from the whole, if you don't get it, you just aren't deep enough attitude that seems to come with poetry. Yeah, it, it's got that very much, I'm wearing a black turtleneck and a beret and I'm snapping um, along I'm, in a coffee shop. I'm wearing a fedora and assuming you don't actually play video games. Oh my god, there is like, there is some serious neckbeardiness happening here. It's like poetry and Gamergate are one and the same. And I'll also be honest here, I was and remain not great with symbolism. You will never convince me that every single work of literature of any sort has symbolism in it. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, Freud. So get over it. Some things are just not symbolism. Stop telling us everything has symbolism. Especially when there's an author who's saying to you, please stop looking for symbolism in my books. There is none. And then he becomes a recluse because he was sick of trying to explain that. I feel like it was Hemingway who said that. Hemingway might have said that too. I guess he became a recluse. Oh, wait, no, no, no. He, he, he just, he shot himself. Never mind. He lived in a place with his cats. Anyway, uh, so Roach, the author of that article, dug deeper and she found five reasons she thinks that people might feel this way, like the way they were taught it. So the first is that we don't tell kids why they have to learn it, which is always a big thing. You've heard me talk about this over and over. I'm not going to beat this dead horse. Just make sure you understand as a, as a teacher, as a parent, as an administrator, as whatever, make sure you understand why you are teaching it because they deserve to know why. The next reason she gave is that we only use certain poems over and over and over. The Tennyson, the Wadsworth, all the crap that Austin was just saying he had to dig through. 
instead of ones they can actually relate to. Stuff that was written post-1930. Oh, please, like, stuff written post-1900 would have been fine. My god, I was on a forum trying to understand some of this, and somebody was like, if you want to read really good poems, don't look at anything that isn't at least 100 years old. I'm like, I will punch you in the throat. She then says that we use really high language, the $5 words I mentioned earlier, while talking about it. We talk like normal people when we talk about short stories, fiction, nonfiction, all of these things. We talk like normal people. But then suddenly when we start talking about poetry, we start using our big kid words, the ones that we would never actually use in any other circumstance. It's almost like we're trying to compete with the poets when we're talking about poetry. And then we don't get why these kids or other people aren't understanding what we're trying to tell them. And then here's a big one that I find with literature in general. They decide to turn it into math. There's only one right answer. Oh, yeah. And if you interpret a poem differently, you don't understand the poem. You clearly don't get poetry because you don't understand this poem. You are stupid. Why are you even here? And it probably got worse when we decided we needed to put poetry on standardized tests in which there really can be only one answer and we have to teach it as such. Oh my god, I still remember the standardized test I took, uh, AP English, which one of these poems was written by a man and which was written by a woman. Defend your answer. Ooh. Yeah, one of them, what, they're both about birds. One was like, the beauty of the bird, blah, blah, blah. The one was like, there was one bird, and then there were two birds. And then one flew away. And so I gave them the answer I knew they were looking for, which is that women are going to do the flowery language while men are much more rigid in their thinking. But that's, that's it's bullshit. Stupid. It's bullshit, guys. That was a bullshit question, and I should and But I was 18 and didn't know that I could issue a complaint about it. I mean, I obviously couldn't raise my hand in the middle of the test. They had no control, but I should have written somebody. <laughs> Um, so when you're asking somebody to interpret something, it's an opinion question. As long as they can back it up, that is all you should be looking for. And we're going to get into a poem that's got several different interpretations here in a minute. You can't even get your own poems right if you're being taught to read and write poetry. Because while well, you messed up this, well, this way with the meter, I don't really understand your meaning here. Whatever. You can't even get your own poem right. There is no way to get an A plus in a poem. Oh my God. Except for me, got an A plus in poems because in my senior year writing class, I had writer's block and he said, write whatever you want. So I wrote a page. He's like, it has to be one page. So I wrote one page of haikus centered because it was still technically one page. And they were a series of haikus starting off with the I have writer's blocks. So I'm writing this page about of haikus going into haikus about how much I hate poetry. This teacher was chill. This was not me trying to beat the system. He would have looked at this and been like, well done. And that's exactly what he did. He was like, okay, this is hilarious because this is still one page. He was like, I didn't ask for a word count. Yeah. I probably could have just put a giant letter on the page and even like, you are not wrong. Just have a, just make it word art. Just word letters going My down. God, I love word art. And just the writer's block. So basically, you can't interpret poetry, and you also can't interpret your own feelings. Put them on a page. Bite me. I'll add one thing to her list of ideas too. We're told before we even start learning poetry that this is hard, and that this is highbrow, and that this is supposed to be deep and meaningful. We are set up for failure. We are gate kept from the beginning. You go into something going, okay, guys, this is really hard. Well, if you're not confident in your ability in a certain subject and you're being told up front this is hard, you're like, oh, might as well stop now. Cool. I'm going to coast through this one. Or if you're like me and you fought a lot of yourself as a student, like, oh, this is going to be easier for me because everything that they say is hard is so easy, then you struggle, you're also going to shut down. You are set up for failure. And what's extra frustrating is if you go through the journals of kids who have just started to understand that poetry isn't Dr. Seuss, you will find this angsty preteen poetry in there. Which means at some point they were relating to the world through this. 
but they stopped because it was being taught to them after that and they were being taught they were doing it wrong. Also, don't read your kids' journals. That's just uncool. So that was all kind of a mix of how poetry is taught and why some people hate it. Like I said, this is not me hating on teachers, but I also have this theory because she didn't bring this up, but... um. You know how I mentioned that we use this higher language when we're talking about poetry? I kind of wonder if it's to hide the fact that we don't know anything about poetry either. Oh, it's like if they don't know what I'm saying, they don't know that I don't know. And exactly. they don't know that I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, when we talk... Okay, so we've both had to like be in situations where we had to bullshit things, right? Oh, all the time. And this is the kind of bullshit where it was kind of a pass fail. You knew that there weren't really going to be follow-up questions unless you made it clear you didn't know what you were talking about. So you start to speak in this very technical way that makes it sound like you know what you're saying when in fact you have no fucking clue that you're using these $5 words. I kind of wonder if that's what we kind of, and by we I'm talking about teachers like me who don't understand poetry, if we switch to that language to make it seem like we know what we're talking about when we have no, and this is not conscious but we're doing that. If we can't simplify it for ourselves, then we clearly don't understand it. And that's fine. It's time to go learn. As a side note, too, I write for a living and they have studied this. No matter how academic of a site you're writing for, unless you are writing for an academic peer reviewed journal, if you are writing in a way that sounds too smart, they will immediately assume you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, the writing level to aim for is between fifth and eighth grade. Writing through about high school is fine, but if you start using these really ridiculous words when you could use simple ones, they're going to think, this person is really trying to impress me with their vocabulary, not with their content. They don't know what they're talking about. So simplify, guys. Keep it simple. If you can't keep it simple, then you can't explain it yet. And that's okay. Go learn how to explain it. Um, so poetry is hard, but it's because we make it hard. And honestly, it's kind of hard to make it not hard because it really can mean anything. So I'm going to use one particular poem to kind of go through and show what the problems are. The big thing that we leave out of any discussion of poetry is the poet. Who wrote this? Why did they write this? Did they ever say anything about it? Without that context, we really can't interpret anything. I will. I don't care what anybody says. You need historical and authorial context to understand what you're reading. You have no excuse to not know these things. Well, you have an excuse to not know these things. Yeah. They've never been taught to you, but you have no excuse for not having this be part of the lesson. A big part of that. Like, for instance, a white man is going to write very differently from a black man, even if they're writing on the same topic, because they have different life experiences. A wealthy person is going to write differently than a person below the poverty line, even if they're writing on the same topic because of their different life experiences. Someone writing now is going to be writing different from somebody even 30 years ago, even if they're writing on the same topic. You need to understand this before you can get into anything. So we're going to look at... um. The Road Not Taken, The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Oh, this one. If you had to analyze just one poem in school, it was probably this one. I believe I've analyzed this poem before. And I am going to read the whole thing to you. Sorry, guys. Austin, looks, Austin just looked at the timer on our, on our uh, thing. So I'm glance at it. I'm going to read the whole thing to you, though, because most people only remember the ending. And it is important to read the whole thing and not just the one that's put on Instagram photos. <clears throat> Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other, as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there, had worn them really about the same? 
and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black oh i kept the first for another day yet knowing how way leads on to way i doubted if i should ever come back i shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence two roads diverged in a wood and i i took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference yeah i remember this poem hearing specifically you know what this poem is about being your own person and making your own decisions and not just going along with everyone else be an individual and it was basically a nike commercial yes which i think it was also literally a nike commercial yes i believe it was actually and you also heard me read it the way i probably would have read it for poetry and forensics now this is without me practicing it if i had actually spent some time practicing it probably would have had different emphases and things like that i would be crying it'd be so emotional it'd be beautiful it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But like when we were in high school, we read it like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Zero emphasis. Just you might as well be Alexa reading a thing. Oh, shit. I said Alexa. She's not in here. It's OK. No, but people might listen to us. Sorry. And... Uh, we usually call her the robot. We do. Chances are you learned that it had an A-B-A-A-B rhyme scheme, and it was written in iambic tetrameter. You are probably told to look for this deeper meaning in it, which is the one Austin just said. It's all about believing in yourself and choosing the road that is not the one everybody else picks. Now, before I even get into what Frost had to say about this poem, I want to point the first thing out. We don't know if the difference was good or bad. Oh. As the, like, at no point does he say, that has made all the difference. What difference? Where is he saying this from? Is he Bigfoot hiding in the woods now? Maybe. Was he originally just some person who is now lost? Does he Was he kidnapped by Mothman and now he lives in Mothman's moth house? That sounds awesome. Yeah, but he doesn't have Wi-Fi. Yes, he does. Okay, Mothman then never will always have Wi-Fi. And then, as Smithsonian Magazine points out, the way it is just in the way it is described, both roads are equally untraveled. Neither road has been traveled. You are standing at a fork in the woods and you take, you look at the one and go, okay, that one has underbrush. That one has grass. And you, he actually says they are equally as fair, meaning they're, they look the same in terms of how much they've been traveled. I just picked this one. Yeah. And both of them had leaves on them that no one had stepped on. So mm -hmm. even if they were traveled, it's been a while. So Smithsonian argues that Frost's point is that we are all completely alone. No one loves us. No, they didn't say no one loves us, but basically, yes. We are all totally alone. All decisions we make only affect us. And at the end of the day, is a difference really made if you don't, if you're if you aren't making a choice that affects anybody but you? Whoa. Um, another thing worth noting about this. Now, remember, you were saying that they picked the road that was less traveled, and that has made all the difference in a good way. Is what we were talking. Yeah, it was a good way. What's the title of the poem? The road not taken which means that this person whoever's telling this story is looking back and reminiscing about how i should have taken that road i took the wrong one and even in the poem and i'm not looking at the exact poems so i'm not gonna get the wording right but he's standing there he's saying i wish i could travel both i would love to come back here someday and try the other path but i know i won't be able to and now with a sigh i look back and i picked the one that i was less traveled by but there's no evidence that it was and it's made all the difference but that difference i believe based on like okay if i'm interpreting the poem without knowing frost's interpretation of it i would interpret it as the big difference in my life is that i look back and regret that i didn't take the other one that's the way i would look at that line especially given that the title is the road not taken 
Also, it was originally titled Two Roads, which gives you a completely different interpretation. Several others do uh, point out that the poem does nothing but contradict itself over and over and over, with some saying it's, oh, it's just a poem about the indecision that is life. And others going, this is basically the fucking Jabberwocky. (laughs) This is where looking at the history and the author is important, because if you go back and re-listen to my beautiful reading of it, or you look it up yourself, you will see the poem really is just a series of contradictions. So Robert Frost had a friend named Edward Thomas. Edward Thomas was also a writer, who was one of those people who could never make a decision and never take a side. To the point where it was said that Thomas, when they would go on walks, couldn't even decide which path to take. He was cheaty from the good place. <laughs> Another version has to do with uh, Thomas deciding whether or not to go off to war, but I couldn't find as much to back that up, where this has an actual series of letters between the two of them backing this up. So I'm going to go with this version of the story. So Frost, after a visit with Thomas, sent him a copy of what was then called Two Roads, with no context. There was no letter, no nothing. He wrote him this poem, mailed it to him, and that was all he sent to Thomas. He was he was making fun of his friend. Yes, He's he like, was. Hey, this you. Yeah. Um. So there's no we the letter back from Thomas has been lost, but the letter back to Thomas shows very clearly that Thomas didn't know he was making being made fun of. <laughs> oh, and he was like, "Okay, um, I'm glad you liked the poem. What do you think it was about?" Is what Frost's response to him was. Like, what do you think I'm actually trying to say here? Thomas still didn't realize he was being made fun of and said it was wonderful. And Frost pushed him to see that, um, or, and, yeah. Thomas said it was wonderful. And he said, quote, it staggered me to think perhaps I had always missed what made poetry poetry. <laughs> This is the most beautiful thing I've ever read. I didn't truly understand poetry until I read this. And he is 100% earnest in this. Oh, no. He is not saying I'm in on the joke. He fully meant every word of this. So the poem, everyone learns. We are just as not in on the joke as Thomas. Yes, and that comes up in a second. Oh, my God. Um, Frost responded. We do have that letter. Then we have this letter. Responds, methinks thou strikes too hard in so small a matter. A tap would have settled my poem. I wonder if it was because you were trying too much out of regard for me that you failed to see the sigh was a mock sigh. In other words, you're overthinking it because you think of me as a great writer. Sometimes what I write is just for fun. Chill. P.S. I'm making fun of you. Thomas responded with, okay, you got me, bro, but no one's ever going to realize this is a joke until you explain it to them. Um, Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but that is what his response said was, no one's ever going to see that this is a joke until you point it out. Now, now that I see it, it's pretty fucking funny. But yeah, yeah, bro, you have to have this as an explanation or no one's going to get it. But the existence of these letters, the fact that these letters were kept and are still available to the public means Frost has told us that this is the poem. Frost has said children everywhere this poem is mocking you it's kind of like all of shakespeare's insults that we don't realize are insults except it's an entire fucking poem and oh my god he is frost has played a prank on generations of english students and Mm -hmm. bravo yeah um and this whole poem actually is just a series of rambling contradictions it is the mental inner workings of cheaty from the good place 
That is all this poem is, is someone trying to make a decision and immediately regretting the one that they made, even though the way they made the decision makes no sense. And there has been, as far as we can tell, no negative outcome except for wondering about what the other path would have done. Wow. Mm-hmm. But we, like Thomas, have spent a lot of time trying to force a meaning onto it simply because Robert Frost is a respected poet. So we can see the problem with the way we teach poetry and how it can make people hate it. Because what if somebody had brought this up? It's like, wait, I feel like this poem is contradicting itself a lot. Or mm -hmm. we can't, wait, we don't know that this one, this route turned out better for him. The only thing we know is that he's alive and we can't even prove that. This could be like his last written words as he dies in the woods. If okay. someone had pointed that out, if you had a cool teacher, they'd been like, let's talk about it. But like, how dare you? This mm -hmm. poem spoke to me. And if you had brought out these letters and been like, actually, he says this, which is actually this is something that happened in one of my classes. Someone brought out, I like I said, I'm pretty sure it was Hemingway. I can't be 100% sure. But they brought out the thing that said that from this author who said that I don't use symbolism. Please stop trying to find it in my books. And they said, I think it was the guy who wrote Catcher in the Rye, maybe. I don't remember, Austin. I'm, I think it's Hemingway, but I'm not okay. sure. Um, and they said, well, he's just saying that because he doesn't want to give it away. Like, what? Why are we why are we looking for something that might not be there? Why are we disbelieving the the primary source? We're told to always believe the primary source. Now, if they'd ended it with JK, fine. But <laughs> and I could not be just kidding or JK Rowling at this point because she has lost all authority. But yeah. So in, if this poem still spoke to you, that's fantastic. That doesn't, a jabberwocky spoke to you. That's fantastic. That's not hurting anyone. Interpret it however the fuck you want. It's not hurting anyone. Um, but in this case, there is actually a correct way to interpret it, which is usually not the case. And that is that he was mocking his friend. <laughs> but if you don't want to interpret that, if you want to go another way, that's fine. Um, and he would think, probably think it's hilarious that we read this much into it even now, just like Shakespeare would think it's hilarious that we consider his to be deep works of art when it's a series of fart and sex jokes. Like Austin will, t will tell you, I say a lot. It's not that deep. And poetry doesn't have to be that deep either. Or, I mean, it can be. But if you're a teacher teaching poetry or a student studying poetry, remember everyone is approaching it from their own lived experience. They're going to interpret it based on what they have lived through already, which inherently means there is no one correct interpretation unless the author has told you what it is. And even then, if you want to be like, interpret it a different way, that's fine. If you want to use this to teach figurative language, that's great too. That In that case, you can kind of have a right or a wrong answer. But God, let it be an opinion piece if you're doing anything else. <laughs> um... Now, I'm not going to magically change your mind about liking or disliking poetry. I'm still iffy on it. I, you're n I'm probably never going to be a lover of poetry. But that's the great thing about literature, really any other art form, including Dadaism. You don't have to like it, even if you recognize that things in it are objectively good. Kind of like, oh, I think of a book that I didn't like that, that it would be important. I don't know why it's, no, I'm not, I only use that one because I can't, I don't know why that one's important. Grapes of Wrath. Hate Grapes of Wrath. Hate it with every fiber of my being. Wish it would disappear off the face of the earth. I understand why it is an important work of literature and why we have to read it. I actually like Grapes of Wrath. Hated it with every fiber of my being. Thought it was a waste of my time because it took days to read. That's how I felt about the Scarlet Letter. Scarlet Letter was short. It took days to read. But that's because at that time you were reading at a first grade level. It was a second grade level. Thank you very much. I liked that one. But Grapes of Wrath, man, that is one of the longest books I've ever read. And that is one thing I believe in reading literature. I believe we should read novels in school. We should not read novels that take up that much time. Like kids have other stuff to do. Yeah. 
Um, so chances are, though, you'll find poems that you like at some point. So just because something is a poem, don't just skip over it. Look at it. Decide if you like it or not. That's how I discovered Rupee Cores. Actually, I think it was on Instagram, but shh. <laughs> um, it was just a, I think it might have been like a sponsored ad for her or something. Like I saw it. I liked it. Oh, here's a question. Do you think we could just start making up lines of things that look like poetry, put them over like scenic backdrops or inspirational looking things and just put those out there and see if people like them? It Deep has to... Thoughts by Jack Handy. Like that, but dumber. I think we could do it. I believe in us. So my advice is this. Teachers, ignore the textbooks as much as you're allowed to and change your curricula to be about debate or self-reflection or literally anything other than right or wrong interpretations. You want to teach parts of speech? Go right ahead. Everyone else, don't skip over it just because you don't like poetry. Try it out. See if you like it. Try your hand at it if you want to write it. Just because something may never be published doesn't mean it's not worth writing. And that is why I and others hate poetry, how we teach it, how we should teach it better, and what Robert Frost was actually doing. <laughs> I wanted to do the Robert Frost thing forever, and I couldn't get a whole episode out of it. Oh, my God. That's... That's my favorite thing that's happened in this entire show we've done, was the fact that Robert Frost has been trolling everyone for decades. 1915, if I remember right. For 106 years. Yep. It was actually January 1915, if I, if I remember right. So yeah, over 100 years, wow. he has been trolling all of us, and he did not intend to. Even he was like, you're overthinking this. It's uh, He says like I, something along the lines of like, you're s trying to hammer this when all it needs is a tap. <laughs> Which I love that way of saying it. Like, sometimes you just look at something and it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for uh, some questions? I'm ready for some questions. All right. So it's not answering the questions. It's will this be on the test? Will this be on the test? No one can seem to agree on a universal definition of poetry. That could never be on a test. Disliking poetry is actually really common. Yeah, that should be on the test. It's like, you know, this isn't for everyone. And that's fine. Context matters. I feel like that should be, but yet we don't put that in English that often. And interpretation of literature cannot be wrong in most cases, unless you can't back up your interpretation. Oh, man, that will not be on the test, but I feel like it should be. See, that's how I always framed my opinion questions was like, I'm not going to count off for whether or not I agree on your opinion. I'm going to count off for whether or not you back it up well. And if, it had, if grammar was involved and stuff, I would also agree on that. It is a billion degrees in here. It is. Oh, so I'm going to go ahead and get started with mine. So a few weeks ago, uh, some washed up C-list celebrity said some stupid shit. And I have just been thinking about it for weeks. Uh, this is Maddie's bad influence on me, by the way. <laughs> so anyway, Dean Kane. Oh, I I don't even know what he said, and I am already mad. Uh, he played Superman in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Which was a good show. Said in a Fox News interview that Aww. he thinks that Captain America criticizing America is horrible and wokeness has no place in comments. And he also said that we should be grateful that we live in a freedom-loving country like America. And if you don't love it, you can leave. Yeah, not all of us have Dean Cain money to just pack up and yeah. leave, bro. Otherwise, we'd be in Scandinavia uh, right now. Uh, later, he admits that he had not actually read the comic book in question. Oh, my God. He had just listened to some right-wing talking points about comics being too political. And he is making them more political by commenting on the politicality yeah. of them. And so that was some bullshit. Like, comics have always had a political bent to them. Like, there is no way you can read the X-Men without, like, seeing that it has a message related to civil rights Mm -hmm. Or women's rights, or gay rights, mm -hmm. or, you know, things about immigration and all of this stuff. 
And that's not the only one. All of these comics have had some level of social commentary that sometimes is political. Otherwise, people wouldn't give a shit about them. Yeah. But Dean Kane played Superman like 20 years ago. So I guess we have to give this troll some airtime. Has anyone told him Superman is not technically American? He is not. He's actually an illegal immigrant. Yes. But, you know, we gave him airtime anyway. And we let him talk. So at this point, I'm going to talk a little bit about Superman specifically because he played Superman. And I'm going to talk about how Superman led the charge and toppled a large white supremacist group in the real world. Superman is real? Superman's not real. But the radio drama show was. So we've mentioned the movie Birth of the Nation a few times on this podcast. Yes. Um, and how it is a movie depicting the clan as heroes. And it was a huge like boon to the clan. They saw their membership just skyrocket after this movie came out. It was a hit. And people said, oh, the clan. Yeah, they saved the South. We should be a part of this organization. And with the years following that movie, their membership just kept growing and growing. And they got more influence. And with that influence came increased violence and intimidation. And they were getting more and more comfortable with being out in the open. Like, there was a 50,000 person march, this parade of clan members in robes with their hoods up so you could see their faces in Washington, D.C. in 1925. And their membership growing. There were millions of members nationwide. This was a not a small group. And with these people, there was hundreds of incidences of violence and intimidation all across America, not just in the South. And they were tr- actively pushing for further influence further north and trying to spread their message. And when World War II ended... Uh, they they decided we need to show that we are back in force. So they had a 300-foot-tall cross burning at Stone Mountain in Georgia, where they have that, you know, lovely statue we talked about in the walk. Didn't Stone Mountain come up, was it last week or two weeks ago? A few weeks ago when we were talking about Mount Rushmore. Why do you think they made Kenneth from 30 Rock be from Stone Mountain, Georgia? I don't know, because Stone Mountain, Georgia, it's like Stone Mountain's just right outside of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so, and here's a here's a quote from it. More or less, it says, let them know that the war is over and the clan is back on the market. What? Yeah, just basically, it's like, let let the people, these uh, non-Americans, they viewed them, the foreigners, the Jews, black people, Hispanics, uh, Catholics, all these people know that the clan is back and we are here in force. It's not nearly as good as Backstreet being back. No, nowhere near as good. And I'm even, I'm not even a Backstreet Boys The choreography Boys girl. was awful. <laughs> So, Sorry, no, Backstreet Boys, we are not calling you white supremacists. Now, not everyone was happy with this, obviously, and including uh, a man named Stetson Kennedy. He was a folklorist from Florida who decided, I'm going to infiltrate the Klan. So he just joined the Klan, learned their rituals, talked to people, and wrote down their stories. Mm-hmm. And then he thought, boy, this is all I need to take them down. So he went to the authorities with this information, and they didn't do anything. Well, the authorities were also in the Klan. They, some of them were in it, and the ones who weren't saw this as a influential organization with lots of power, and they were intimidating people all over the country. Oh, yeah. They didn't want to. So it's kind of like when we went to Costco and people were asking, like, wait, she's not wearing a mask when we, you posted that picture. I was like, of course she's not. Well, they're like, our Costco's enforcing it. I'm like, yeah, our school board meetings had to have people dragged up by security around here. So I yeah. feel like they had to make a call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after the authorities failed, he went to a different people, some different people, the writers for the Superman radio drama in 1946. And so he went to the writers of this show and 
this was one of the most popular radio shows. Just period. Like, people listened to it all over the country. People would drop what they were doing to tune in to listen to the adventures of Superman on the radio. Kind of like you all do every Tuesday for Will This Be On The Test. Yeah. But this was, like, even bigger. And it was on the radio, which was, like, podcasts, but before we had smartphones. It's a thing. So, yeah, this incredibly popular show. And they were almost immediately on board with this. It's like, yes, we are absolutely doing this. Because World War II was over, and Superman needed a new villain. And they thought the clan is an amazing villain villain for Superman to have. And, you know, they had also done like a couple of shows in the past where they had like gone up against like hate groups and talked about how what the Nazis was doing was wrong and how authoritarian groups are wrong with Superman. So this isn't the first time they did something like this, but this was time they were going after the clan very specifically. And they produced a 16 part series called the clan of the fiery cross. Mm. Now it wasn't actually the clan. They changed some stuff around. So like, you know, it wasn't exactly the clan, but people knew exactly what they were talking about. And you know, the story that they told was fairly simple. Uh, Jimmy Olsen is coaching a baseball team and uh, they get a new pitcher who is much better. So they put this pen pitcher in the game instead of their old pitcher. And the old pitcher is mad about this. So he goes to his uncle, who's a member of the clan of the Fiery Cross, to harass this new pitcher and his family because they were not American enough. Now, I didn't hear them say exactly what about this person made them not American enough. I believe it was intentionally ambiguous so that people would see like their neighbors or someone they knew instead of a just specific minority in that place. And then because this is happening and they burn a cross on his lawn, Jimmy Olsen is talking about it to Clark Kent, who is, by the way, spoiler alert, actually Superman. And then Superman goes on to expose the entire organization and thwart all of their plans, including bombings, cross burnings, kidnappings, all of that stuff. That was like, again, pretty simple story. But what was brilliant about it was how they exposed the Klan. Because Kennedy, and uh, they also worked with the uh, Anti-Defamation League, mm -hmm. to get all the information about the Klan's actual rituals, their code words, their secret symbols, and all of this stuff that they did. Because this was a secretive society. And Kennedy and the Anti-Defamation League and the writers of Superman knew that if you took away the secrecy of the society, you would kill the mystique of the organization. It'd be like, oh, that's all this is? Oh, I don't want to be a part of this. That sounds boring. And they, like, that's what they did. They put all this out there. It's like, yeah, this is what the clan actually is. And again, they had a huge audience, so everyone heard it. It's like, oh, I don't want to be a part of this. And they also cons consulted psychologists and behaviorists to find out the best ways to ridicule the clan to make people think, I don't, I shouldn't be a part of this organization. I should be against this organization. Uh -huh. They actually got experts and talked to them about how do we best defame the clan and de-radicalize I love people. that the Anti-Defamation League was like, all right, bitches, let's do the opposite. Yeah, and just like all these things, like how do we de-radicalize our viewership or listenership, I guess. And it really worked. One of my favorite examples was the kid who had joined the Clan of the Fiery Cross with his uncle with his uncle um like you know the topic of it comes up while he's talking to his mother and his mother says oh she thinks it's dumb and she'd be a show so ashamed of her son if he had joined this stupid organization and was doing these horrible things uh, and all through this the clan were kind of bungling they were easily fooled and they were just bullies of the worst kind <laughs> like in real life 
I remember somebody was going off on me about something. Um, he was really mad about something I had actually researched and he only vaguely understood. And then it's, he's getting angry and angry and calling me names. And I'm just restating I'm like, well, from this part of that bill, from this part of that decision, blah, blah, blah. And finally, I said, I'm sorry, at some point in your life, someone taught you it was okay to speak to people like this. I hope that you take this time to reflect. He did not respond because it was me going, your mom fucked up. <laughs> and he understood it. And there was even a scene in which one of the leader, the, one of the senior leaders was telling a subordinate and like yelling at him, like, hey, stop it with this, like believing the line we're selling these people. We're trying to get members so we can get membership dues. And we're in this for the money. Their hateful ideology was just a big scheme to get more members, which, again, it was. Mm -hmm. There were people at the top raking in cash and they decided if we can get money out of these rubes for like who believe this stuff, we'll get money out of these rubes. Go back to our episode. Are you in a cult? Yeah. And meanwhile, while this is happening and they're showing all of this stuff and their secrets and all the stuff about this organization, Superman is thwarting their plans, saving the day and delivering a very clear message that prejudice is un-American. Yeah. Isn't that like that meme that's gone around Facebook forever? Yeah. That was a scene from a comic book back in the 40s. Yeah. Superman has always been exactly about this. Yeah. And this show, it was only on the air for a few weeks, but it had an immediate impact. New membership for the clan went to zero. This is not hyperbole. It actually went to zero while this was airing and shortly after it aired. Wow. Uh, and it also had a big impact on the existing membership too. An interview with a man said he quit the clan after he got home from work and saw his son and his friends playing Superman in the yard. And his son had gotten his clan robes out of the house and he was the villain being thwarted, thwarted by Superman. And he thought, oh my God, I can't be in this organization. My son will just view me as a villain. I need to rethink what I'm doing. This is wrong. Yes, you do. And he like he saw that and he quit. And he wasn't the only one. By 1948, two years later, the Klan had gone from a nearly untouchable force in America that the cops couldn't help stop, politician, politicians were having to pander to, that were becoming politicians themselves, uh, went from being this big powerful force to a literal laughing stock. That, that, sorry, that story reminds me of that kid that was interviewed recently. He's a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And so he was a freshman, I think, when the shooting happened. And his dad has gone so far right wing that he's starting to say that his son's own experience was crisis actors. Ugh. And his son is like, I don't know what to do. He's like, I've told my mom, like, mom, if he doesn't stop when I go off to college, I'm not coming back. And she's like, oh, yes, you are. She doesn't agree with him, but she's letting him say it. And he's like, my dad thinks that I faked my own school shooting. Like, my friends died. Uh, yeah. I'm glad that dad went the other direction. Yeah. This will, yeah. They went to a literal laughingstock. People would go and attend Klan rallies in large groups to heckle the Klan. That's awesome. In numbers that outnumbered the Klan's people themselves. That's awesome. That's what happened when um, the Westboro Baptist Church came to Boston to protest the college I attended at the time. Yeah. Uh, they outnumbered the Westboro Baptist guys. They apparently got out of the vans, looked around, got back in, and drove back to Kansas. <laughs> I was not there. I had to. I had to work that day. I think, uh, but and it was almost entirely because of this show. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took this secretive organization that was like you know coming out in the open and becoming more powerful, and really just exposed the secret parts of it to a huge viewer, a huge listener base. I keep saying viewers. No, I was saying, I was laughing at exposed the secret parts. Exposed the secret parts. The tiny, tiny balls of the clan members. The tiny, tiny, and the itty, just itty bittiest of dicks. Does the clan let women in or is it all men? 
I think it, they do now. I'm not sure about back then. I'm, I just never thought about that. Because, I mean, there are women who yeah. follow those ideologies. I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, there are plenty. There are I know, plenty we saw of women. one at Costco. Yes, we did. And to be clear, Austin did not post a picture of her face on there. He is not a supervillain. Yeah. He is. I mean, that, I don't know if they make you supervillain or a villain at all, but he's not that guy. He's not trying to dock somebody, basically. He was like, look at this flag. Yeah. They just very effectively, with a large base, just went to everyone and said, this is what it really is. And they listened to it because it was Superman. Mm-hmm. And the clan actually did try to fight back against this. They made legal challenges because they were exposing their secrets, but uh, they were almost immediately dismissed because one, it's like, no, this wasn't about you. This is about the clan of the Fiery Cross. Yeah. Are you guys saying that? And also it's like, like are you saying this is about you? Are you saying that and, you're doing these illegal and all things? things? Like, oh, did Superman actually go after you? Because, you know, they, um, again, all of their cases immediately thrown out. They also tried to boycott Kellogg's. Because Kellogg's was the sponsor of the show, and their boycott failed miserably. Which is interesting that the Klan was all about boycotting things, but when the Civil Rights Movement started, they were aghast that people would try and boycott stuff. I guess they were mad because, like, no, the Civil Rights boycotts actually worked, and theirs failed. Yeah, I mean, they're cool with stuff until it's not the stuff they want. Like, they're cool with wearing masks until they're asked to do it for medical reasons. Yeah, and, of course... They were also telling people not to listen, but it was futile. Superman was a big deal. He sold millions. There were millions of Superman comic books sold. Uh, the radio drama was one of the most popular shows like ever at that point when it was airing. It was a big cultural phenomenon. And a lot of this, what I'm talking about, reminds me of right now. Like if you'll look at uh, the Marvel movies, you'll see basically a bunch of stories about superheroes that has dominated pop culture for about a decade now. More than I think. Yeah. And we also have a, t- a period of time in which there is a lot of misinformation and xenophobic rhetoric being spread around. Mm-hmm. And I really just truly hope we can something like this happens again, where comic books and these comic movies will use this large platform to say, hey, this is wrong. Don't do this. But then we have the Dean Cain's of the world who are against it. Probably He'd probably be boycotting Kellogg's, if we're being completely honest here. I bet that lady at Costco didn't know to not buy any of those Frosted Flakes we walked by. Oh, They're great, though. So, and, uh, but recently, um, there was a comic book series that came out. It was a limited run. It was by uh, Jean Luan Yang. Uh, he's the author of uh, the award-winning comic book, American Born Chinese. Mm-hmm. And he basically uh, adapted this radio drama, The Clan of the Fiery Cross, to be Superman Smashes the Clan. It is a comic book adaptation of the radio drama with some modernization. It still takes place in the 40s. And the uh, family being harassed by the clan is Chinese. Okay. Which, I mean, you've seen in the news a lot of harassment against Asian Americans and and Pacific Islanders. It's like, it sadly still plays to a large extent, even if the organization they initially went after is largely gone. Yeah, and I I do want to mention, the clan still exists, no matter what was heavily implied to us in school. The clan has never stopped existing. It's just no longer as nationally influential as it once was. Yeah, it's they know better than to, t- to lift up their, their face, their, their masks now. Yeah, no problem wearing them then. So I, I read it. I liked it. You should check it out. It's a, it's, a nice, it's a nice little read. Wonderfully illustrated. And yeah, that's my little story about Superman beating up the Klan. Take that, Dean Cain. Comic book shouldn't be controversial or political. Yeah, Dean Kane, the character you played. Oh, that tells me Dean Kane didn't research his own character. No. You know, that's also something that really bugs me. Like, okay, if you are playing 
a historically important character or whatever, it is not the director's job to tell you that person's history. It is not the dramaturg's job to tell you that person's history. It is your job to go research the character you are playing. If you're playing somebody with a long storied history like Superman, if you're playing a real person or whatever, it is your responsibility to go learn about them, not someone else's. Yeah, that's my little bit. All right. So are you ready for some questions? Yes. All right. Will the fact that comics have always been political be on the test? No. Will the fact that the Klan uh, tried to and failed to boycott Kellogg's in the 40s be on the test? I'm still a little confused by all of that. Yeah. Will Dean Cain's dumb opinions be on the test? Dean Cain will never be on any test. Dean Cain probably has not taken a test since that, no. you know, probably I, I would assume some kind of religious test to see how much money he owes his pastor or something. Yeah. And will that the fact that a radio drama marketed to children was one of the most effective PSAs to ever exist beyond the test? <sighs> no, but it should be. And that's actually something I got into it with on somebody on Facebook. It's like, kids are a major part of any cultural revolution. Yeah. Like people saying, you shouldn't have your kids at these riots. Like, first of all, they weren't supposed to be riots. Yeah. These were pro peaceful protests. They were peaceful protests until the police started rioting. And second, if you look at the 1960s, who was at the front of all of the parades? kids because that is who people look at and go oh shit they look like my kids even if they don't look like your kids because kids are all kids are kids kids have to be a part of all of it yeah all right so it is okay guys our podcast closet we are both like grossly sweating yeah we are drenched um so where can people find us well they can find us on twitter at on the test pod on instagram at on the test pod on facebook at facebook.com slash on the test pod and our website, which we are currently renovating, on thetestpod.com. You can also check us out on the most recent episode of Mythstory, M-Y-T-H-S-T-O-R-I-E, where we talk about the squonk. And you can hear me on an upcoming episode of Story Shout. Uh, so it's all one word, Story Shout. And I believe it's one word. Now I'm questioning everything in my life. Um and I think that about sums it up for us to today. It is a billion degrees. So, and I think, and I want to go watch Nightmare on Elm Street. Can we go watch that? We can go watch Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think our microphones are are melting, like we are in a Salvador Dali painting. So we should probably is that go. Dadaism? No, that's surrealism. We've been over this. <laughs> and on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed.